Okay, so what I got on my hands here, you can, if you're, if you're in the back, you might not be able to see, but what I have here, I have a couple examples of what are called uh, gospel tracks or, or evangelistic tracks. And now many of you know Phil Wagner, he's my good friend, and a couple of, well, you probably know if you know anything about him, you know he has a heart for telling people about Jesus, and it turns out that's infectious. He's really helped me in my own heart to want to tell more people about Jesus. And one way that uh, I've worked on doing that is by handing out gospel tracts to people. And it's really interesting the reaction you get when you start talking about handing out tracts. And the funny thing is, in my experience, most of the time when you hand a, a tract to someone who's, who's a non-believer, uh, they're, they're okay with it. They don't, uh, they don't get mad at you. They don't throw anything at you. Uh, at least that hasn't happened to me yet. Maybe it will. I don't know. But most of the time, they're not upset. They're not offended. And um, in fact, a lot of times, they actually really like getting them. And the one that I really like, my favorite one, is the million-dollar bill because it looks like cash. It's kind of a, a fun way to just uh, you know, hand it to the barista and go, hey, thanks a million. And we all get a good laugh and uh, you know, kind of move on. So most of the time, it puts a smile on, on their face. So then it's, it's, it's kind of strange that the people that... Uh, tend to balk most about using tracts are, are us Christians. We kind of think, well, you know, they don't, they don't really work, do they? Like, nobody has ever gotten saved because you handed them a tract. Like, no one's hearts actually change because of that. And that's kind of what many of us have a tendency to think. Uh, but, but what I've found is that it's actually not true. Um, you can search online. You can find stories of people who did get saved actually because they were handed a tract. It does happen. Um, but something re I realized something when I started handing these out a couple of years ago, and what I realized is these tracks, they actually work 100% of the time. You think, okay, what, what do you mean they work? So what I'm telling you is when I hand out a track, 100% of the time, someone's heart changes, and that someone is me. Every time that I have a, uh, have a conversation with someone or I hand a tract out, my heart gets changed, and my heart is reminded that this person I'm interacting with is a, is a real human being with a real soul, with a real eternity that they need to deal with. And so it's these little tracks that, in part, help me to keep that eternal perspective fresh in my heart. Well, welcome. As Rob mentioned, my name is John. Um, we're in the second of a three-week series uh, in the book of Nehemiah and how it relates to our desire to plant a new church out of Northview. And so if you were here last week, you know we talked about the importance of the church, um, how it's the body and the bride of Christ, and how we should love the church just like Christ loved the church. And I encourage you to pray for the church, both established churches like Northview and also all of the church plants uh, out in the world, such as what we hope North Wind will be. Um, and I also mentioned last week that if you want to sign up to join the prayer team, you can do that at inview.org slash northwind. Uh, that's where you can get a couple of emails a month from me with very specific things you can pray about as we move forward. You can also sign up to um, learn more about the church plant if you want Got the thumbs up from the back. I think we're okay. Uh, so anyway, if you want to 
Um, go to that website. You can, you can learn more about it. We have a, a video of an informational session that I gave about a month ago. You can learn a bunch of more details about what we're, we're looking to do. Uh, that's where you can go for information. And I just want to say real quick thank you to those of you who have already signed up for the prayer team. Um, there is a massive difference when you're being prayed for. Let me just tell you that. So if you think, you know, does prayer work? I'm here to tell you, prayer works. So if you want to sign up, you can even whip out your phone and do it right now, and I'll be happy. Because um, it definitely makes a positive difference. So thank you to those of you who've done that already. All right, so last week we talked about, we started talking about Nehemiah, and we said uh, that he was in Babylon along with most of the rest of the people of Judah, which was the southern part of Israel. And we discussed in particular the state of Jerusalem, and so the walls of the city of Jerusalem had been lying in ruin for about 150 years uh, before Nehemiah came along. And that was when Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king, uh, raided Judah, uh, sieged and, and ransacked Jerusalem. Uh, he knocked the walls down, destroyed the temple, carried off most of the remaining Jews to Babylon. He only left the poorest of the poor there. And this was, again, really the state that Jerusalem had been in for a century and a half until Nehemiah came along. And so Nehemiah, who lived in uh, the capital of Babylon, he was visited by his relative Hanani and uh, some other Jewish people, and he discovered that Jerusalem was still in shambles and that the people were both unprotected and living in shame because of the condition of the city walls. And so last week we looked at uh, Jeremiah's response to this discovery and we saw that he responded in prayer. You see, he, re he realized that at its foundation, the problem in Jerusalem was a spiritual problem, and it needed a spiritual solution. And then we talked about how building up the church is likewise, first and foremost, a spiritual endeavor. Right? We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against powers and principalities. And our primary weapon of war is prayer. And so I hope that you've been praying along with me this week and will continue to pray, again, for the established churches in our midst and church plants as well. So we know Nehemiah prayed. We know he started with prayer. And today I want to look uh, at, at exactly what it was that Nehemiah prayed. What did it look like? What were his main concerns? What took up the bulk of his prayer to God about Jerusalem and its people? And what we're going to learn, we're going to see, is that Jeremiah or excuse me, Nehemiah, focuses on the brokenness of the people. And so he sees a lost and a sinful people in desperate need of redemption. So we are going to look at his prayer. It's in Nehemiah chapter 1. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles or phones. Uh, it will also be on the screen. And we're going to start in verse 5 of chapter 1. So this is Nehemiah's prayer. And I said, O oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments or the statutes or the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. There your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Okay, so imagine for a moment that you are Nehemiah. You've heard a bad report about the city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, is a city that's at the center of your religion and really uh, your way of life, and it's just devastating news. You're beside yourself with sorrow over what you're hearing. Now, if you were Nehemiah, how, how would you have prayed for Jerusalem and hearing this news? Now, if it were me, I would have probably said something like, Oh, God, please be with the people there. Comfort them, provide for them. Help them to overcome their adversity, Lord. And I think I would have uh, plenty of justification in praying that way because there are plenty of prayers in the Bible, especially if you look at the Psalms, that make these kind of requests of God. So you've got the people of Jerusalem, they're they're in dire physical need, and they need help. But it's interesting, that's not what Nehemiah does here. Nehemiah prays something else. And I think Nehemiah prayed differently because he was in exile in Babylon. And he knew why he was in exile in Babylon, along with his fellow countrymen. And he knew this because God had made it plain what would happen if they broke their covenant with him. In fact, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a written record of God's covenant with Israel. And towards the end of the book, God lays out a series of blessings and and curses. And he says, if you keep the covenant, I will bless you in amazing ways. God even says at one point that he will set them high above all nations on earth. But then he says, if you fail to keep the covenant, then you will be cursed. And God says that he will rebuke them, he'll cause their crops to fail, he will sow confusion among them, and ultimately, if they don't repent and change their ways, then he will drive them out of the land into exile. And so God lays out the terms of of these uh, conditions in advance. In fact, um, the events in Deuteronomy were were about a thousand years before Nehemiah's time. So when exile came, it shouldn't have been very hard to figure out why it happened. And Nehemiah even references this idea in his prayer. If uh, you look at verse 8, he says, Please recall the word you commanded your servant Moses. If you act unfaithfully, I will scatter you among the nations. Again, that's straight from the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of our Bible. So God had made it clear that if his people persisted in their sin, they would be sent into exile, and lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians overran Judah. They, again, they took all but the poorest of the poor, and they left Jerusalem for dead. And all of this... God tells them, in advance, is the direct result of their prolonged and continued sin and rebellion as a nation. So Nehemiah is actually living through this. And so he knows something, viscerally, that escapes us most of the time. And he knew how big of a deal sin is. And really, when when was the last time you actually stopped to think about sin? I know it's not a very pleasant topic, but it's a very real one. And have you ever really grappled with how big of a deal sin really is? But Nehemiah knew. Every morning when Nehemiah woke up in exile and looked around at where he was, 
he had the opportunity to remember the effects of sin. And when he heard the report about the suffering of, of the people in Jerusalem, he knew he was witnessing the results of sin. And so his prayer ref reflects this. And so his focus is on sin and repentance. So I believe that, uh, that as our culture, uh, we as a culture, we just often just do not understand the immensity of the depth and the breadth of sin. And even as Christians, even uh, as me up here saying this, it's just extremely easy to forget that. And the prevailing narrative in our culture doesn't really help us in this regard. So what do we hear day in and day out? What, is, what does our culture tell us about ourselves? Well, we say, well, we're, people are basically good, right? You've probably heard that. Everyone's doing the best they can, and everyone is following their own truth. That's a very popular thing to say right now. And sure, yeah, people mess up sometimes, like nobody's perfect, but you know, and there's a couple people out there that might really be evil, but just a, just a few of them. But most of us, right, we're pretty good, right? We're doing okay. We're doing the best we can. Uh, you know, as, as long as your heart is in the right place, you know, you're a good person. And you don't need to worry about something as old-fashioned as, as sin. Like, really? Sin? Well, according to the Bible, though, that narrative is just about as far away from the truth as you can get. Let's take a moment and review a couple examples of what God says about who we, what we're really like when we're left to our own devices. First one is in Psalm 53, and, and it says, God looks down from heaven at the human race to see if there is anyone who is wise and seeks God. Everyone rejects God. They are all morally corrupt. None of them does what is right. Not even one. We're not off to a good start. All right, let's look at another verse. This one's from Isaiah 64. We are all like one who is unclean, and all of our so-called righteous acts are like a filthy rag in God's sight. Okay, so we're over two now. Let's look at another one. Jeremiah 17, 9 um, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Does not sound like something that we should be following. Let's take a look at one more. This is one we all probably all know, or many of us know. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So from God's perspective, we're not good at all. So what you have to remember is good is a comparative term. And so when we say, oh, well, I'm a good person, the question is, who are you comparing yourself against? And if you're comparing yourself against other people who you maybe specifically chose because they're not as good as you, yeah, you start to look pretty good. But the Bible says, no, the standard of good is the one who embodies good, who is good, and that's God. And when we compare ourselves to God, we do not measure up. In our natural state, we aren't good at all. Compared to God, we're morally bankrupt, and that's even the best of us. That's, even, that, that's, that's everyone. As James says in his epistle, whoever keeps the entire law yet fails at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Isn't that amazing? If you tell one lie, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. That's what God says. If you look at one person with lust, then it's as if you broke the whole law. That's how much worse we are than God. So the Israelites in Jerusalem were in a bad place. Israel broke their covenant with God. They'd been conquered. The people had been exiled. Jerusalem had been ransacked. And the people who were left or who escaped and managed to find their way back home were in dire straits. 
And the root cause of all this suffering was to be found in Israel's sin. Okay, so why is, why is this important? I mean, it's kind of a downer, right, talking about sin. But in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges that, that, that our uh, American church faces today is that we just forget how big of a deal sin is. We, under, we don't remember how bad it is, how it separates us eternally from God. But if we don't understand how bad sin is, how can we have a concept of how good Jesus is? And if we don't have that concept of how incredibly good Jesus is and what he did for us, how will we ever be proclaimed, compelled to proclaim it to others? So if you could look inside the hearts of the people in our community this morning, right here in Bothell and Mill Creek, I think you would see a similar condition as what you saw in ancient Jerusalem. I think you would see a lot of broken down walls, a lot of burned down gates, I think you would see hearts filled with death and despair, and I think you would see sin reigning where God should be. And in fact, this is one of the compelling and major reasons with, that we're looking to plant a church. I mentioned last week that there's a, a drastic shortage of churches um, in our area, in our local community, and we, we simply need more churches to, to start making a bigger impact uh, right here in our cities and our neighborhoods. And this is the first reason why we think that uh, we want to, uh, that planning a church is a good thing. But we also live in and among thousands upon thousands of people who are living under the curse of sin. They're living without Christ and without God. They think they're good, but they're not. They think they, when they die, they will either not have judgment at all or that they'll get a free pass into heaven because they're good. But in reality, they face an eternity apart from him. And when I look out at that, I can't just sit here and watch it happen. I'm compelled to do something. And so this is the second big reason why we want to plant this church. And one of the biggest revelations for me when I first started learning about church planting is that this is actually one of the most effective means of evangelism there is. Now, did you, did you know that? Because I, I sure didn't. Let me say it again, though. Church planting is one of the most effective means of evangelism that there is. So in other words, if you want more people to come to Jesus, planting new churches is one of the best ways to do it. Okay, so getting back to Nehemiah, he knows that the root cause of the suffering of his people is sin. But notice that it's not just their sin. Look at what he says in verse 6 and 7. He says, I am confessing the sins of the Israelites that we have committed against you. Both I, myself, and my family have sinned. We have behaved corruptly against you. So for Nehemiah, it wasn't just other people's problem. He didn't just look out at, at Jerusalem and go, those people are, are bad. They, I don't know, they did something horrible. Like, they need help. And he didn't just say, God, it's all my fault. I did this. But he said, no, we, we have sinned. So for Nehemiah, it wasn't about other people who sinned. It wasn't about him, even though he had his own uh, problems with sin. But he identified himself and his family with those who were suffering. And so he understood that, uh, that this was a, really a corporate aspect. 
and that he was in the same boat as those people in Jerusalem because of his own sin. And so we understood that confession and repentance were an integral part of his endeavor. So we discussed last week that prayer was foundational to building up the church because building up the church is first and foremost a spiritual endeavor. I keep, you know, keep saying that, just keep reminding us of that. But the same is true of confession and repentance. So part of joining God in his mission is to deal with the sin in our own lives. And Steve has talked about this uh, recently from the pulpit, and he actually talks about it a lot from the pulpit, which is great. And not too long ago, um, Steve, you were talking about how the Spirit works in us to, rem- to remove and cleanse us from the sin in our lives. Uh, and you referenced a book that, that many of us have read called The Safe King. Uh, that's all about these little kingdoms of sin and self-centeredness and self-authority that we erect in our own hearts. And it's these little kingdoms of sin that keep us from, from growing in Christ-likeness in those areas of our lives. And they end up holding us back in our sanctification, in our attempt to Uh, through the Spirit to become more like Jesus. But the key here is that they don't just hold us back individually, although they do. There is also a corporate element to the effects of sin. So again, Nehemiah didn't just say that I have sinned or that they have sinned. He said we have sinned. So our sin can actually affect the whole community. Did you know that? Think about the sin of Achan. Um, If you don't remember this story, it's in the Old Testament book of Joshua. And the Israelites at this point have just crossed into the promised land. They're slowly taking over the land. And they're fighting battles. God is blessing them. They're winning battles. But they run into a problem when Joshua sends men to attack the city of Ai, and they get routed. So they've lost their first battle. And Joshua is just beside himself. He has no idea why this is happening. So he tears his clothes. He gets down on his face before God and says, God, what is happening? And God tells him, well, you lost the battle because of Israel's sin. So Joshua goes to investigate. And he finds out that one man, Achan, had taken some spoils of war that God had specifically told them not to take. Now, to make a long story short, Achan ended up losing his life over this, Uh, But it wasn't until that sin was dealt with that Israel again found success on the battlefield. So one man's sin affected the entire nation. Think of another example more recently. Steve and I were talking with a local pastor. How how about now? All right. So I think of an example a couple weeks ago. Steve and I were talking with a local pastor, and he had noticed that the fruitfulness of the church's ministry had had kind of fallen off and they couldn't figure out why. Well, it turns out one of the leaders had some sin that needed to be dealt with and they weren't effective until they dealt with that sin. So sin is a big deal. It affects you, it affects your community, it affects our church, it affects the people around us. And the fact that many people in our community are lost and are dying apart from God because of their sin should motivate us to find ways to reach them with the gospel. And the fact that sin in our own midst as a church can cause our ministry to be effective should drive us to continually search our own hearts and repent. So as Nehemiah prayed, he confesses his sins. He confesses his community's sins uh, in a spirit of repentance. But he also couched his confession in terms of God's promises. 
And he reminds God of the covenant that God made with Israel. And God, in this covenant, he chooses Israel out of all nations to be his people. He brings them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them into the promised land. And God promises to always be their God and to bless them so long as they were faithful. And furthermore, God promises that if the people who were in exile would repent and turn their hearts back to them, he would again extend his faithfulness. So that was the, the, the promise of the covenant that God laid out in the Old Testament. And of course, this idea of covenant faithfulness finds its fulfillment in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus fulfilled the covenant. He succeeded where Israel repeatedly failed. And so ultimately, we know that Jesus is the one who brings about our redemption. And so when we do think about the devastating effects, effects of sin, we can do so with the hope of Jesus because he fulfilled the covenant. So God promises to redeem all who will call upon him. And Jesus opened the door for all people to do that because we all need uh, him to, in order to receive those benefits. We all need his saving grace. So Nehemiah cared deeply about his fellow Israelites who sinned against God and were therefore under his judgment. And he confesses their sins along with his own and he asks God for restoration of the people based on their repentance. So just like Nehemiah, we're in the same spot. We should care deeply about our fellow neighbors who are under God's judgment. We should confess our own sins and the sins of our community and pray that God would bring about repentance. And I think we should look upon ourselves uh, and our neighbors in the same way that Nehemiah looked upon himself and his fellow Israelites. Look, we're broken people, and we're in desperate need of redemption, and that redemption is only made possible through Christ. So how can we do that? What are the takeaways? What can we take from Nehemiah's story and, and apply it to our own? Well, the first uh, is that we need to repent and believe. And I don't know who's here today. Um, I don't know all of you. I don't know who's watching on YouTube or Facebook. But I would implore you, if you have never seriously thought about this, if you've never repented of your sins and turned to Christ, do it today. Okay? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. None of us is good compared to him. And because of that, we deserve death and eternal separation from God. But Jesus died on the cross in our place, and then God defeated death by raising him from the dead. So the Bible tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's really that simple. So if you haven't done that, why not do it today? Why not do it right now? But the gospel is not just for the lost. Sometimes we fall into that trap as Christians and we say, uh, well, yeah, the gospel is what you do to get saved and then, and then you kind of move on. Well, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's not the starting point. He says, no, the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. Okay, the gospel is the whole thing. The gospel is for Christians too. Okay, we all need the gospel all the time. We have to make confession and repentance a part of our walk with God. So for those of us who have, who have followed Christ, in your prayer life, in my prayer life, do we make a regular time of confession and repentance? And if you don't, make one. Allow the Spirit to come in and do some housekeeping. Okay, we're in the spring right now. Uh, we're doing spring cleaning, right? I just took a load of trash to the dump a couple weeks ago. 
I had junk in my garage and I wanted it gone. So I, I, I got it in the car, took it to the dump, and I, I threw it away. And that's the same thing with our hearts. Confession and repentance allows God to start coming in and cleaning out the junk in your hearts so you can be more like him, so you can be more Christ-like. So a second and closely related takeaway is that we need to allow the Spirit to convict us of areas of sin in our life. We're just not going to see God's power at work in us until we repent of our sins. And Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew 7. Here's what he says. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So many of us have been praying for revival in this area for many years. We prayed about it this morning uh, before, before service. But we have to continually make sure that we're not the ones standing in the way. So Nehemiah knew that his sin was part of the problem, and it wasn't just about other people and their sin. So as we're longing for revival, we would do well to look at our own hearts. Are we as sold out for God as we want other people to be? Ouch, I just convicted myself. Or are there other er areas in our life that we want to maybe keep control over? We don't want to hand over to God. I, I would ask you, ask the Spirit to reveal those to you this week. Start confessing and repenting of those. And finally, this week, I would ask you, just ask God to break your heart for the sin in our community, in Mill Creek and Bothell. Just like Nehemiah, we have a chance to build up God's kingdom. But first, just like Nehemiah, we have to have our hearts broken about the sin in our communities. So will you pray with me this week? Pray for our own hearts, the hearts of our own communities. Pray against the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's pray. God, we know that sin is a weighty topic. We know it's an unpopular topic. It's one that goes against the grain of the cultural narrative. But we know that it's true. We all struggle with sin. We all deal with sin. But we praise you, God, because we know the, the answer. It's not through our own goodness. It's not through our own effort. It's through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God, may that empower us to repent, to confess, uh, and to turn to you. I ask this in your name. Amen.